Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Joining us today is the author of Schoolhouse Wreck, and the senior editor of Think Progress, Jason Lincolns. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Now, Schoolhouse Rec, uh, published by Strong Arm Press in 2018, is a uh, critique, analysis, and short bio of uh, Trump administration secretary of education, Betsy DeVos. Now, of all the potential targets in a Trump administration, what compelled you to focus on the Secretary of Education? Um, you know, what's, what's kind of incredible is that this was uh, sort of an opportunity to write about someone that I, to be honest with you, I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about. I mean, I, I obviously knew who Betsy DeVos was in general, and I, I understood a lot of the contours of the controversy surrounding her, uh, but it was kind of a really interesting experience to dive into this person and this life that uh, I just had never had a real opportunity uh, um, on any of the sort of beats I was on to like get heavily involved with. Um, And I have to say, I I feel uh, the book is, you know, obviously largely critical of DeVos, but I think in a weird way, um, and, and maybe you want to chalk this up to Stockholm syndrome, but in a weird way, I feel like I uh, I did develop sort of a begrudging respect for her. She's a fascinating. She's a fascinating subject, and I think, uh, uh, in ways, a misunderstood subject. Um, you start in the book talking about her wealth, her family's wealth. Uh, now, there are other wealthy people in politics. Is not new. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt came from wealth. John F. Kennedy came from wealth. Uh, why does uh, DeVos's wealth uh, matter in terms of her uh, education agenda? I think that one of the most important things about Betsy DeVos is uh, this sort of like the, the family she's from. Um, she 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 was uh, she's actually Betsy Prince. Her uh, her brother's Eric Prince, who, who famously ran Blackwater. Her father was a, a, a wheeler dealer businessman and uh, donor to the conservative movement in his own right. But marrying into the DeVos family, which is uh, Richard DeVos, the patriarch at the top, her um, father-in-law who, who, uh, who, who, who created Amway, uh, this has tapped her into a sort of pool of wealth that was an entirely different order of magnitude than 
she might have otherwise been expected to accrue in her lifetime. Uh, but more important than the wealth, and the wealth is vast, uh, is the strategy that the DeVos family has historically put behind the use of their wealth, beginning first, of course, with a lot of philanthropy. Um, they have uh, basically remade Grand Rapids, Michigan in their in their image, and you can't swing a stick without hitting some uh, building or or civic uh, civic space that's named after the DeVosses. Uh, they've really and, and the family sort of works in this sort of uh, concentrated fashion with each other. Their family has a, a family assembly uh, where they meet regularly. They gather together to decide on how they're going to use their money. Uh, they are very strategic and routinized in the way they deploy this, this largesse. And it is really, I think, just the, the combination of the uh, the gigantic pool of money they had to work with and the very meticulous strategizing of how to deploy it has made them a tremendously potent force in politics, uh, mostly in Michigan, but it has really radiated out from, from Michigan. Uh, and it's been doing that for quite some time. And, and Amway is not your typical company, correct? Oh, no, no. Amway, you know, one of the, I, I'll have to say, one of the biggest challenges of this book was when I got to the part where now I have to explain what Amway is, and I'm thinking, I don't have 200 paragraphs to do it. Um, yeah, Amway's not a typical company. It's a multi-level marketing company, and I think that, you know, the the sort of way most people interact with Amway is they meet a friend who's an Amway salesman, and there's a, and they sell, like, basically, you know, home products, like, kitchen cleaner. They have a makeup line. Uh, they basically sort of sell the kind of things that you might go to Costco to buy. Um, but what's really interesting about Amway is that it's really not a sort of product first centered business. It's kind of, uh, it's almost like you're buying into a certain sort of uh, lifestyle, aspirational lifestyle. That's what they sell. Um, the, the whole idea is that a person who joins Amway has the option to sell a bunch of products to people to be their own business, as they as they say, they buy inventory and they move the inventory. But really, the purpose of joining Amway is to recruit other people into Amway and create what Amway calls a downline, uh, where where the profits that the people in your downline make, you earn a you earn a percentage of that, and of course, the people that are in your downline or out there trying to create their own downline. The whole sort of weird concept of Amway is that everyone who joins, joins on the ground floor, which sounds exciting. It's just that they keep defining the ground floor downward. Now, it has all the makings of this of a, of a Ponzi scheme, but Amway has survived a lot of legal scrutiny because as far as the uh, Federal Trade Commission's uh, point of view on this is, is that all Amway is are people buying and selling products like rational consumers. Um, so they kind of skate by in a way that other similar arrangements might get banged up for fraud. But what's really interesting about the Amway upline downline structure is that's how the family works too. The, there's like patriarchs, different levels of, you know, sons and daughters, and then their grandkids and their great grandkids. Uh, they really borrow this whole idea of a discipline structure. 
so it's a really fascinating. It's a part of their fascinating history. And you mentioned that her brother, Eric Prince, uh, ran uh, Blackwater, which is a controversial uh, private military contractor during the uh, Iraq War. And Prince has even been uh, tied to the Trump campaign and its dealings with uh, with Russia uh, during the campaign. Uh, I, I don't want to prod you down a conspiratorial path, um, but do we do we know is is there any relevance to the fact that Eric Prince and Betsy DeVos are siblings, or is this just sort of a weird coincidence? Oh no, I think that there's definitely. I, I think it's always safe to assume when we're talking about uh, DeVos's or Prince's that there is uh, there's intentional avenues of synergy going on. And I think it's probably no coincidence, you know, I think that I think that Blackwater during the second Iraq war uh, accrued a lot of scandal. Uh, there was the Nisor Square shooting that brought a lot of disrepute upon them. And I think that Blackwater has uh, right now, even as we're talking, uh, just anyone out there in the audience that might be listening to it, we really have no way of knowing what name Blackwater is operating under now at any given time. They've been called uh, Chi, I think, or XI. And I think they're currently called Academy with an I at the end. Um, But I think that, you know, since DeVos has become part of the administration, you've also seen an uptick in activity on Eric Prince's part. He's uh, published editorials that are really just sort of amount to advertorials uh, describing about how his business can sort of, uh, you know, uh, be a, a force for, uh, creative disruption in war zones like Afghanistan. Uh, the whole idea being that he's sort of reinventing. He, he, I think he's aiming to kind of reinvent the Dutch East India Company uh, now. And I think that probably his ideas do have some traction in the White House. So how do we get from uh, a family that made money through a, a quasi-Ponzi scheme became great philanthropists in their in their hometown, uh, a brother who's involved in <laughs> private military contracting. What per, per, what prompts Betsy DeVos to prioritize school reform? You know, it's really interesting. I think that probably the aspect of school reform that excites Betsy DeVos the most is and now we jump to another, uh, you know, the wealth being the big guiding light in the DeVos's life. Now we jump to uh, the sort of religious uh, aspect of the DeVos's family philosophy. Uh, the DeVos's are are very much rooted in these kind of Dutch Calvinist traditions um, in Western Michigan. Um, the There's a sort of like idea of this Calvinist work ethic that at times has, has sort of butted heads with other Michigan traditions, especially uh, labor organizing traditions. Uh, the uh, they sort of have um, this overarching sort of spiritual philosophy that um, that mandates that like you know the, the idea of like strike breaking is is good and, and 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 I think that one of the concepts that the DeVosses uh, work with all the time is this idea of kingdom gain. This idea that they are out there trying to win converts for Christ. Uh, and I think that first and foremost, 
they see public schools and the firewall between public schools and and, and religious uh, instruction as a big impediment to their designs as as religious people um, as as people who who worship the way they do and DeVos has made it uh, one of her central missions to uh, break down that church state firewall especially in uh, in in education as much as possible and so when we talk about DeVos's devotion to school choice uh, I believe that you first have to reckon with the idea that to her it means uh, more religious instruction, less restriction on the promulgation of theological ideas in 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 education, uh, and I think a sort of specific inculcation in a very specific type of Christian faith, um, and she has over time one of the one of the big things that she she tried to do was make this explicit in Michigan and say well school choice when we open we're going to we're going to have total school choice total laissez-faire type of system and we're going to not have any kind of uh uh line of demarcation between uh secular and religious schools everybody's in the same pot everyone is 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 on equal footing and these were the kind of things that were that Michigan voters initially rejected. Now Michigan, and again, she's been the primary mover behind this, has a very broadly unregulated school choice regime. And while none of these charter schools that have come in are explicitly religious schools, many of them, when you start to scratch the surface, if you just sort of like, uh, get into their mission statements, you discover that there is this uh, religious uh, backbone to their uh, to their uh, uh, sort of curriculum. So uh, we I think those who have uh, read news stories about her in the past or saw her on 60 Minutes know she was a education reformer in Michigan. Uh, well, why don't you first, how did she get to get in that position? You know, she's, she wasn't someone who went to education policy school. How did she get positioned to have such influence in Michigan's education system? I mean, I would say that uh, here you get into just uh, DeVos, um, sharp elbows, and real good, uh, real political skill and savviness. Uh, you know, she, then Governor John Engler, uh, when when John Engler was governor, now he's the interim president of Michigan State University. He's uh, has a whole other pocket of problems with that post. But when when Engler was was governor, he um, he saw a lot of potential in DeVos, and obviously saw that she was sitting on a, a pile of king making money, and put her in charge of the. She she gave her a position with the. Uh, state uh, GOP, the state Republican Party, uh, in the hopes that you know she would have a a real benign influence on on that organization, work in concert with Engler to get things done. Uh, but really, very quickly, she started bucking uh, and and started pushing for uh, school choice um, 
I think ahead of the timetable that Engler thought was appropriate. Um, and when it was put to a vote, um, she lost that vote and, and Engler looked, uh, the more prescient at the time because he had cautioned, I don't think Michigan voters are ready to embrace these ideas. I think we should go slower. Uh, I think we should make our case in a more, uh, incremental fashion. And she didn't want to listen to that. She wanted the future in an instant and didn't get it. But at the same time, what she did achieve, and this is something that I think DeVos is very good at, turning occasional setbacks into wins down the road. Um, the process by which she went about trying to win that vote uh, deepened her connection with uh, Republican politicians and turned her more into the power center in Michigan. And the transformation was was kind of slow and then all at once. Uh, she de- she became the kingmaker in Michigan. Uh, people needed to uh, cater to her, um, win her over, because she could now put so much money into local races that it was impossible to win without her support. Uh, there was a period of time where the American Federation of Teachers, which is one of the two big national teachers unions uh, would make a habit of making bipartisan endorsements. And the, in the period of time between she first lost her school choice vote and then started garnering all this power, um, Republican politicians would, would tell the AFT, Hey, I really can't accept your endorsement. If I take your endorsement, I'm going to be in Dutch with DeVos and I'm going to lose my race. So really, it was just good, you know, it, it's, it's just that kind of like political steel. And I think this is an interesting thing to, to talk about because I think most of the way, most of the time when we think about DeVos, we think about that brutal C- Minutes interview, or we think about the, uh, the, the confirmation hearing she endured, where she kind of seems to not know what she's talking about. She comes off as a real dilettante. Um, not at all well versed in anything related to education policy, and so we we there's this there's this we tend to think of DeVos as this bumbling figure, uh, but she's actually really really uh, an intimidatingly skilled political actor, and I think that and she has a set of really strong core beliefs, um, and so I you know if there's one thing if there's one impression that I, I would love people to take away from this book. It's just don't underestimate her. She really does know what she's doing. She's not some kind of, uh, you know, hapless, uh, comedic uh, figure out there. How do you explain then one of the more famous incidents was when she was being uh, grilled for in her confirmation hearings for Secretary of Education. Uh, then Senator Al Franken asks her, uh, what's your opinion on this debate between growth versus proficiency. Uh, should we be judging students based on how proficient they are in a subject, uh, which sort of argues for standardized testing, or should we be judging them on their growth? How far have they come from where they started? And she couldn't seem to grasp the question. Did, did, did that speak to an actual uh, actual ignorance on her part about these education debates, or, or are you suggesting 
that she really knows these things, just maybe isn't skilled at dancing on questions she doesn't want to answer, but she knows what the policy is and what she and her own views on the subject. Yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, because I've I've given that a lot of thought, and um, I actually think there's a third explanation. I think that she doesn't know about growth versus proficiency because it's just not something she cares about. I think that in her viewpoint, that's all just details that don't have any relevance to her. And and you'll note that given the opportunity to actually learn something about those aspects of public education that we might care about, she doesn't make the effort. I mean, we've had, there's been, you know, uh, what, two years between her confirmation hearing and the 60 Minutes interview, and we're, we can track the same sort of ignorance of the same subjects. And I think, that, I think that we have the tendency to sit back there and think, my God, she's so stupid. Is she not capable of learning this? But really, it just doesn't rate with her. It just doesn't rate with her. She does, if she needed to learn it, she'd learn it. But in her mind... She doesn't need to know any of this because it doesn't really play a part in her vision of what public education should be. So it's to her, it's, to her, it's like all it's it's Sanskrit. It's Sanskrit. It doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, this is New Books and Politics on the New Books Network. We're talking with Jason Lincolns, author of Schoolhouse Wreck, a book on Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. Uh, so if she is uh competent more competent than public perception with clear sense of core belief clear sense of of agenda it's been at, at the point of time we're talking a little more than a year since she's been in the job how successful has she been executing the, the agenda she wants to execute well so one of the big things that i think people think about when i think about devos is the sort is her uh her positioning on school choice and her obvi- the obvious way she wants to make that a mission. Um, just recently, DeVos met with some of the nation's uh, top teachers, um, and the conversation mostly centered around the idea of school choice. It's deleterious effects on public schools, the way it drains uh, taxpayer dollars from, uh, from school coffers, the way it poaches high-achieving students from... Uh, the herd of students that are eligible for uh, public schools. And, and there was a, I, I think a, a, they had a, a round a sort of discussion and debate around these issues. I think a lot of the teachers left pretty unsatisfied. That said, I don't, I don't think there's, one of the things I think you have to understand about DeVos and school choice and the department of education is there's not a lever at the Department of Education that she can pull and suddenly institutionalize school choice. Um, There are very few avenues for her to even be messing about with public school curricula or public school funding because so many of these decisions are made at the state and local level. That doesn't mean she has an absence of avenues, but she's kind of restricted in what she can do as far as pulling policy levers to affect that. Now, can she certainly advocate for school choice, uh, empower people who support her ideas, who do 
have greater access to those levers, um, influence the way money gets spent or donations get made uh, or or policies in Congress take shape. Yes, absolutely, she can do that. Um, but I, I think it's important that when we conceptualize Betsy DeVos's agenda and what she's able to do as the Secretary of Education, that we sort of understand that on on, on the school choice side of it, the game is a little bit different. Now, what she has been doing at the Department of Education where, where when it comes to levers that she can throw is she has uh, gone out of her way to reduce the sort of equities that vulnerable populations of students, we're talking about uh, 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 women subjected to Title IX, um, benefits, disabled students, uh, student loan borrowers, uh, um, students who who rely on the Department of Ed's um, civil rights uh, regulations to to help them. She's gone out of her way to uh, reduce those benefits and put them more in a wilderness of worry. Um, she's also gone out of her way to take away the kind of rules that uh, provide regulation and policing of for-profit colleges and student loan servicers. Now, overall, the, the name of the game here is, well, we're saving taxpayers money. Um, you know, when, if, we, if we require a student loan provider to be on the phone with uh, with a borrower uh, to research the best possible payment option. Um, that takes time. Taxpayers are billed for that time. And on the top on top of everything else, maybe the borrower got steered into a more equitable repayment option. And so the government's not taking in money as much as they might have if they were uh, sort of denied that information that could benefit the borrower. And so she sees it, I think, as mostly ins and outs of taxpayer money, and she can justify it all by saying, uh, well, we're saving taxpayer money, we're reducing the size of government, we're reducing government involvement in these fears, uh, and let the chips fall where they may other, otherwise. Um, those are kind of the areas, the sort of like vulnerable populations of Students talking about minority students, minority students, disabled students, uh, women, uh, victims of sexual assault on at colleges, and then anyone caught up in a student loan regime or a for-profit college regime. That's where she's had a lot of lever-pulling impact. In the um, in the Obama administration, issues about student debt student debt were uh, rising in intensity. There was more student activism around student loans, student debt issues. Um, there was an instance with um, uh, the Corinthian colleges where the yeah. school, school school collapsed and the uh, students demanded restitution um, and the Obama administration negotiated some kind of compromise there, which satisfied some, didn't satisfy others. But it was, it, it was an issue that was of rising importance to students and presumably their parents who might have to shoulder some of that uh, lingering debt uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, if Secretary DeVos is going in the opposite direction uh, and, and, and favoring 
private financiers who aren't necessarily going to uh, alleviate student debt and are going to shift more debt burden onto students. Are, are you seeing students today focused on the issue the way they were doing more and more a few years ago? I, I think, well, you know, what's really interesting is, is that um, I remember when the, the Corinthian activism really kicked in the high gear. It was, I th- it was an interesting story arc in the Obama administration uh, because I think that the Obama administration really had to be, in some ways, dragged to the point where they started uh, taking the matter seriously. Uh, but there was a door ajar. There was a door ajar. These student activists knew uh, that, you know, Obama had said, you know, you guys make me better. Um, and so they took him at his word and, and, and endeavored to do that. And they created some guidance that was very helpful. And I would, I would say that Obama left office having installed a more virtuous regime than was there pre- presently. Um, with DeVos, it's, it's kind of an, inter- it's a, it's a different game. I don't think the same, I don't think the students have really quite the opportunity to negotiate as partners with DeVos. I think that, uh, I think that where there was an open door to settling some disagreements or encouraging the Obama administration to take a path, I, I don't think that door is, is quite open. Now, what you do see is um, lawsuits um, cropping up um, against DeVos in these issue areas. Um, the, the Harvard Law School Legal Services Center project on predatory student lending has been uh, one of the institutions that's led the way at taking on DeVos in the courts. And many of the cases that they file are, while they don't have quite the breadth of a Corinthian class action suit, they're still operating with this within the same issue areas. We're talking about students who didn't get the education they were promised, whose loans should be rightfully discharged under the law. Uh, and, and the difference is the Department of Ed is not helping. They've had to go to outside sources to obtain, you know, someone who will fight alongside them. Uh, in addition to organizations like that Harvard organization I just mentioned, uh, state's attorneys general have taken up the cause in earnest. I believe there are a pair of lawsuits against the Department of Ed right now to which I think some 16 or 17 separate state's attorneys general and the District of Columbia are currently attached. They're also in these issue areas of for-profit college predators and student loan servicing scoff laws. Uh, you also mentioned uh, that DeVos has uh, waded into the controversies surrounding um, the crisis of sexual misconduct on college campuses, and uh, the Obama administration had a directive to uh, make it easier for those who were uh, uh, victims of sexual misconduct to uh, have uh, their situations addressed. Uh, DeVos seems to be taking things in, a, in an opposite direction again, uh, despite the fact there were any so-called Me Too moment. Uh, and DeVos being a woman in Trump's cabinet, nevertheless, uh, doesn't seem to be 
on the Me Too side where we want to be uh, believing uh, uh, women's stories and not assuming that they are making making things up when there are accusations of sexual misconduct. What, what do you make of I – mean, explain a little bit more what DeVos did uh, on that score and what do you think her motivation is? Well, you're definitely right that the the sort of broader – uh, Me Too movement that we've talked about, it's not something that's taken root in uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, Department of Education. In fact, one of the things I think that observers were a little bit disturbed by was that when she started exploring the whole issue of sexual assault on campus, uh, she, seen, she met with uh, men's rights organizations and seemed to place them on the same sort of level of standing as the uh, adv- advocacy groups that have discussed the prevalence of sexual assault on college campuses uh, for, for, for years and years. Um, it's a bit of a blurrier area, what she's doing in this, because I do think there was no real clear consensus about whether what the Obama administration tried to do in this area was uh, truly effective. Um, I think that it was an attempt of the Obama administration to lower the largest boom as possible. And there are plenty of of left-leaning legal scholars who had issues with what the Obama administration was doing, which doesn't necessarily, or did, which doesn't necessarily mean they completely cotton to what DeVos maybe wants to do, uh, but they do allow for the possibility it could get better. One of the big issues, I think, with what was going on with how Obama approached this was that there was an evidentiary standard. Uh, they they used one of the lowest possible evidentiary standards um, in determining uh, these cases, and it did create a... It did create a regime in which the people being accused of these these crimes had legitimate claims to a lack of due process. The good news is, of course, there's there's different evidentiary standards. You can go from um, you can you can go from uh, you can go to, you can drop it from beyond a shadow of a doubt to to clear and convincing evidence. Uh, there's there's I don't want to get into too many legal terms of art. But but the basic idea is that you can like you can you can shift the evidentiary standard and create a more fair and equitable uh, way of mitigating these uh, or adjudicating these these crimes uh, so that everyone receives fair treatment under the law. Now, it's any it's anybody's guess what DeVos might do finally in, in this area. But the concern you raise that, that this sort of overarching sort of cultural shift we're experiencing as something she's immune to. I think that's definitely fair to say that it's not going to play too much of a factor into her thinking. And I, I, I especially, I especially worry about the limitations that are being placed on students who have need of support in sexual assault proceedings when they ride alongside a similar degradation of protections for uh, disabled students, because at the intersection of disability and sexual assault, uh, we're we're talking about students that um, 
really people need to go above and beyond for when they are making when 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 these crimes are committed against them. You know, if you're if you're deaf, if you suffer from cerebral palsy, if you suffer from Down syndrome, you're already at a remove from the world in which most cops and most lawyers work. And so there need to be uh, someone in that gap willing to bridge it. And if the Department of Education is not going to give some clear guidance uh, that provides for those kind of bridges to be built, those students could be affected doubly by, by these by these these things. One thing that strikes me as a little, uh, it's hard, hard for me to square, uh, not too hard to square, I guess. She, her main interest is school choice and reducing barriers of separation of church and state. Those are the things that have been her driving passions from her early Michigan days. And it seems like as Secretary of Education on the federal level, she's being pushed into other areas sexual misconduct, student debt, for-profit colleges that uh, seem to be pulling her away from from her most cherished uh, agenda. Do you think she is doing that because she believes in what she's doing there too? Do you think she's doing it to cotton to the boss or cotton to the boss's bait? <laughs> um, or is it just a matter of these are the things that she has direct power over and she doesn't have direct power over these other things? I think that it's the first and foremost. I think that yeah, it's the it's the it's the uh, it's what she has the power to control uh, most directly is is what is what guides her. I think there's I, I do I definitely think there's there's uh, there there are threads of connection between these these agenda items, uh, and I think that I think that DeVos is the kind of person who's. Uh, smart enough to know that if she can't push the envelope on one area, she could nevertheless work on what she has, push that envelope, and maybe get some connection back between the two. Um, one of the, one of the things that's I think really interesting, important to remember is that you know when she started out trying to build a school choice regime, her eye was for it to be something that America embraced, but she started in Michigan. Uh, the way she's packaged her ideas, um, both in terms of, of school choice, uh, she's also been uh, was instrumental in, in transforming Michigan into a right to work state. Uh, her policy ideas and the way she sort of packages them, they're very portable. And I think that you'll if 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 you get into uh, the efforts being undertaken in other states to enact similar policies. I think that if you follow the thread, you'll follow it back to some of DeVos's original ideas. So I think that she understands her power as a sort of iterative idea creator and member of the conservative movement uh, that at all times she's pushing these envelopes, um, bringing in different stakeholders meeting up with influential people, meeting up with donors, creating these sort of opportunistic connections between people that might be able to help her advance her agenda and their issues, their, the kind of things they're concerned about, the kind of benefits she can provide them. And I think that she is just this unique, uniquely interesting 
nexus of all these synergies uh, so that and she's so good at, at managing people and expectations and that that even if she might be just sort of working on changing the world of of for-profit colleges or you know benefiting benefiting for-profit predators or reducing the the ability of student loan borrowers to 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 pay to pay back their their loans in an equitable fashion even if she's got you know even if she's just if she's elbow deep in that stuff now and not so much the school choice anymore the charter school regime i think that she's still pushing outward and of course when she leaves the department of education whatever that is she's going to carry with her the imprimatur of having been the secretary of education and that'll open even further doors i think that she's a very very good long game player and i think she's I think she's a kind of long game player that keeps it simple. She doesn't play 11 dimensional chess. It's always just pressure, 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 pushing on the choke point, pushing on the, the weak link, you know, breaking down the obstacles uh, in relentless fashion, getting it done. Uh, And one thing I will say, you know, you talk about, you know, is she taking orders from the boss? One huge difference between Betsy DeVos and most members of Trump's cabinet and a difference between DeVos and Trump himself is that DeVos has core beliefs. Uh, she, they've guided her throughout. She's, she's not some kind of chimera. Uh, she, she, she didn't come to this job with kind of no clue about what she wanted to do and how to do it. She's not, and she's not a Scott Pruitt figure, this who really truly is hapless and transparently bad at his job and, and easily caught out. You know, she is a force to be reckoned with in this in, this particular administration, you know, I hold her in higher. I, I have, I've, I think I have a lot of, a lot of respect for her, and I, and I feel like she's more formidable than than a lot of people in the Trump administration. Uh, to wrap up our talk, I do want to ask you about your publisher, Strong Arm Press, which is a, a new new kid in town, uh, not a traditional book publisher. Tell me how they came to be and um, how you came to work with them. Um, well, uh, strong arm press was, um, it, it's a really, it's a really unique and cool idea. It was started by, um, uh, Ryan Grimm, uh, my former editor at the Huffington Post, who now is at the intercept and, uh, Alex Lawson. Uh, and I think what they've done is, is really interesting. Um, they have sort of like reconceived political book publishing, um, to account for the speed of the, uh, the sort of politics is in a kind of really quick metabolic state right now. Um, information is, in the, is seriously exacerbated by the Trump administration, but but the, the, the space moves really fast. Uh, and so there isn't really a lot of uh, able to do much more than stick and move when you're in the news cycle. And strong arm press is, is uniquely positioned to be kind of a book publisher that also you know, sticks and moves. They're into quick turnaround. They're into, uh, you know, they're short. These books are shorter. They're not big novels. They're not tomes. Uh, I sort of liken them to the old, well, not old. I think it's still an ongoing series, but the 33 and a third series that uh, I forget who started it, but it's, it was just, this is a series of short books about uh, a record. You know, it's like a book. One guy talks about, the replacements, let it be. One guy talks about uh, 
Prince's Sign of the Times. You read that book, you get the absolute deep, dense information about this one thing. And I, th- I think that they've kind of imported that idea to politics. And they're working on uh, these very, very short turnaround books that are easily digestible, but still dense with information, still things that you can pull off the shelf and say, oh, I saw this reference at some time. What was that? I remember reading that. Uh, it could put you into, it could take you out into, you know, different articles, connect you to different sources. Um, it's a really, it's a really cool idea. Um, it's, it's also kind of an intimidating idea. This book I wrote is the third that they put out in this series of uh, Trump's swamp creature cabinet. The first one was Tom Price, and the second one was Gary Cohn. And if you'll notice, like shortly after those books were published, those guys lost their jobs. So um, right now, my book is the underperforming member of the collection <laughs> and that I have not taken out Betsy DeVos. Uh, so, you know, I have, I have real worries about that. I feel like inadequate uh, to the rest of the roster. And I worry that. But if she, if she stays in office, she'll get more sales. Yeah, that's true. Once, once, once the guy is fired, no one wants to buy the that's book true, anymore. That's true, but you got to understand the guys who wrote those books, they're, they, they stand a little taller right now than I do. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I have to think about those guys as the people who, who maybe played a part in taking down the, the people. And, you know, I came up a little short, I guess. <laughs> uh, the book is Schoolhouse Wreck, published by Strong Arm Press. Uh, the author is Jason Lincolns. Thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. I'm, this is a really great time. <laughs>